0: What we do possess, whether it's the brilliance, whether it's the sensibility, whether it's the personality that helps to create a different dynamic and shift energy in a room. I think those reminders as individuals are key that we can uplift them in communities to remind them of what they hold and what we all hold. But then how do we take that with the system agency to make change? Understanding this is hard stuff. So every day is not going to be perfect. But on those not so great days, what are the reminders of the goodness? They remind you of why you do the work you do in the first place.
1: There's a lot of talking and thinking and working on issues of equity and inclusion, on issues of race and gender. But it's rare that we hear a conversation about how these things impact the people doing the work and how it shows up in folks day to day lives. Coming up is a conversation with Dorian Spears, whose work has spanned several states and sectors. People listen to her across the country, invite her to speak. And I myself have spent a lot of time asking her for her guidance on how to approach this work. I'm Dr. Adrian Johnson-Williams, and this is Equitable. Dorian. Welcome to the Equitable Podcast. I'm curious. I call you for advice on things. People invite you to speak internationally now. What is it about what you do and what you've done that has positioned you to be someone we rely on on conversations about race, gender, equity, and general fairness and justice? Thank you for that question. I would describe myself
0: adding on to that as an equity and inclusion practitioner, a generator. So someone that's able to like come up with these ideas and just not, not be tied to them by ego. Like let's throw out there and see what sticks on the wall. A visionary in the sense that I think about life in terms of like the seven generations, like who comes behind me is absolutely critical to like who I am um, an essential becoming someone who's curious about what liberatory practice and structure means. Like, what is it like to like be a liberated black woman in America? a social impact leader because the nine to five that I work every day is in that social impact space of increasing women, trans and non-binary and BIPOC people in the tech space. How do they get to be more active participants and be a part of that wealth creation? And also a proud introvert on top of all of that and being out in public or speaking in spaces that, you know, I recharge alone uh, more than I do with, with people. And with that, I think it's come from a myriad of things. My jobs over the past 20 plus years have been about how do we help people that are deeply impacted by issues, the underdogs, if you will, who doesn't necessarily get the voice at the table. And I've been privileged enough to be in rooms and at tables with folk to bring that sensibility into the conversation and more importantly, bringing the people that are willing and able and have the capacity to come and share at that table what's really going on so that we can try to get to some kind of solution um, and not just talk about it.
1: Let's start with a really easy question. Where do you come from? If you think about, say, how it is you end up doing work on race, what's the thread in your life that got you
0: here? So when you asked me where I come from, I immediately wanted to say South Memphis loud and proud. Um, It was in a neighborhood I think that was probably dominated by white folks. And then I know my mom's parents moved a different direction into South Memphis and it became kind of this hub for lack of a better phrase, black excellence. So Carver High School was the -hmm. the high school of note. The Cobras are still proud decades later, they get together. And when I think about that and access to a library that was down the street for me, it was my ability to explore other worlds and realize the one that I'm from, while it's great and give me what I need, there's so much more there. And when I think about this as it relates to race, It came from going to a couple of elementary schools that were in the neighborhood and then going to what was considered an optional school in another part of what people might call South Memphis, but Whitehaven and realizing education was Mm -hmm. different Mm -hmm. and had some point coming back to my parents and saying, hey, I need to go back to this optional school because the education is drastically different. And I knew it was different because the school before I went to the optional school, I was doing really well grade wise, but I wasn't sure if I was being challenged. And I had the opportunity to get sent to the the optional school, and that's when the rigor kicked in. And I wasn't making like all A's and one B situation. No. So when that happened, I ended up having to go back um, to the the original school. I had to sit down with my parents at ten years old and say, "Hey, can we figure this out?" And I know those types of issues quite frankly, get parents in jail now if they're trying to get their kids better education. Mm -hmm. But I was at 10 years old going to my parents to say, hey, there needs to be a different way uh, for me to learn. And I'm not sure how you'll make this happen as adults, but I do want to have the best education possible.
1: Wow. Wow. So now that you are a full grown woman and you're out in the world doing work, how would you describe the focus on race in your work now? and the focus on equity?
0: I would say it's probably more leaning toward equity than race these days, just because Mm -hmm. I'm in more of a gender lens and the intersectionality Mm -hmm. thereof. And the main things that come out to me is how do you go into a room where people think if we help one, we help all, to have a different sensibility to say, okay, let's think about this group and this group and this group. So if it's women, if it's trans folks, if it's Mm non-binary, And on top of that layering, the fact that they may be black, brown or indigenous, that's super mm-hmm. important because we know the data shows us from at least a tech space dominated by white men. there's It's a wealth creator. How do we include this and make a space for all and not just to have them represent it, but how can they thrive in those roles? Mm-hmm. One particular statistic for the work that I do now is we know that women tend to stay in the tech role for about five to six years before they wanna mm-hmm. run away or go do something differently because it's just not an environment that embraces them. Um, So how do we look at bringing about different mental models for for leaders, for managers to think about if you're going to include these folks that you want to, and I hate to say this, but check off the box. How Mm -hmm. does that look like to have them be in the roles, but also be able to ascend into leadership roles to create opportunity for those that come behind them?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm so glad you mentioned the intersection of gender and race uh, in your work by listing out all the various uh, ways that gender shows up and then adding on the racial component. Um, I think intersectionality is somewhat overused as a term because people don't really understand it. But the reality is the way that you go through the world is a combination of everything um, about you. It's not just one identity.
0: Audre Lord's way, right? You can't go it. You yes. don't exist as a single identity in the world.
1: Right. Right. And I'm curious, though, because sometimes doing this work, people who share identities don't necessarily agree on how to get the work done. And I imagine there are points of conflict around how you're approaching equity and how other women or other black women or their femmes might agree uh, how they might think about the work. So do you have those kinds of conflicts and challenges and what do they look like? So there's a couple of layers to that. There's our internal team, which is
0: majority women. And we too have a trans human on our team where we think about that because our work isn't necessarily on the ground directly with folks, but we are in community with those who are. And mm-hmm. I think we're across three geographies. So Chicago, D.C. and Miami. And what I've seen there is that there are different things in different cities. There's some commonalities and through lines to know. There are not enough people represented in these spaces being able to do the work and be in leadership roles. But the nuance of it depends on, let's say, D.C. federal government. So it houses a lot of things, a lot of power and the ability to affect policy in a way that maybe Chicago isn't quite in Miami. Um, When I think about Miami, it's in a red state. Um, Our work has political implications. So DeSantis in terms of like creating particular laws around Mm -hmm. how we serve women trans and non-binary folks is real for us. Mm -hmm. And we realize we have to be in solidarity with organizations that are supporting some of those subgroups that we know the political system doesn't want them to exist at all, but they are not gonna go away. And then when I think about the Chicago side of what we do, there's this Midwest nice that still kind of exists. Um, So they think, well, if we just like open it all to everyone that it'll be okay. So I I have noticed a bit of tension there about we really want to have a a specific focus on women, trans, non-binary and BIPOC. Mm -hmm. But then it's clouched as like underrepresented founders or underrepresented folks in the workplace. And that could also include white women. So Mm -hmm. there are some some rubs that happen where we are not and probably not in the best position to do with our entity is to, like, put our foot down. We can lend the sensibility, Mm -hmm. but we also don't want to detract from, like, the brilliance and work of people that are doing work in the trenches from what they have going on. So it's like, how do we just lend additional voice and support when we're in conversation and community in that part of the country?
1: You just said a phrase that is very much a part of the lives of black women in professional circles. You said white women. Yeah. So are there. <laughs> you live exactly. <laughs> you live a very integrated life, which I have to say, as someone who's also from South Memphis, uh, that's not really how a lot of us grew up, right? But you live an incredibly integrated life. And I'm curious about how you manage your relationships with whiteness in general, given how unapologetically Black you are. I don't know if the listeners can pick up on that yet, but I do know Dorian a bit, and she's very Black. She's what we like to call Blackety Black. So how do you manage that in a highly integrated environment where you are advocating um, for people of very uh, diverse and intersectional identities? Probably about 13 years
0: ago I was working in government and career-wise this is my my current role has allowed me the the privilege and opportunity and deep learning lessons around how billionaires navigate giving back to community. So my first bit of that was with Bloomberg Philanthropies and the Mayor's Innovation Delivery Team And actually what led me to become more of who I am and grounded in this and unapologetic was the fact that I took the Harvard implicit bias test. Something Mm -hmm. just told me, and most of the work when I'm sitting at tables, I was with white folks in government, even though Memphis is a majority black town, but sitting at the table, listening to people make decisions on behalf of people that look like me without proper representation of those in the room to push back. And when I took that first implicit bias test, it was around race. I lean toward white. Oh. And I was I was shocked and ashamed and curious as to how did I get here? And I thought about it. My simplified answer was I'm sitting around them all the time. Mm-hmm. And as much as my gut is lending me to say one thing in the room, an ego, the other side of me is just like, let's just observe and get some patterns and understand why am I thinking the way that I do? So that's really the precipice that, kind of moved me away to say, okay, I'm sitting around these folks. I have to begin to speak up and say things that are not going to be popular and may have people look at me like they've seen a ghost, but it doesn't make it any less true. Mm -hmm. But I think the other part of that was being literally the minority in the room. I didn't feel there was much voice, so I didn't have much validation. And quite frankly, like mentors and people I could look up to. And at the time I didn't have a coach to help me recenter and ground myself. So Mm -hmm. The way that came about was literally through something like taking the implicit bias test.
1: Say more about that. So what did you do? Like, what is what concretely did you do after you took that test and sat and watched and observed yourself? What changed? I probably started
0: because I think I've gotten better at it now. But I started meditating and just kind of what was it like to sit in silence? Because in working in government and having meetings after meetings and seeing people in tension, I realized there was too much noise going on around me. So what was it like to just sit in my own space? Typically, those meditations ended with me falling asleep, so I thought I had failed. But there's beauty in naps and there's beauty in rest um, that I now know in the gentle way and not forcing that on myself. But it was actually just sitting with myself and allowing the silence to speak to, okay, Dorian, we need to be mindful of a few things here. Yes, I am a Black woman, But I'm also probably helping perpetuate some of the problems and issues that I want to counter. But it's because I feel like I'm alone on a
1: battlefield trying to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Wow. And you sat in rooms with really powerful people, right? Yes. For a good part of your career, you've been around power a lot. So I want to take us back to a conversation we had earlier, right? I really appreciated you helping me to launch my book, Uh, Not Your Father's Capitalism, What Race Equity Asks of U.S. Business Leaders. Yes. And you interviewed me that time. yes. And a big part of our conversation was really about power, power being, you know, the ability to make things happen. And in Memphis, where we're from and in other places that we've lived around the country and the world, we've both recognized that power is often white. Yes. And so what I want to do is uh, share with you a couple of clips from that conversation and just get your thoughts about what you hear and because we really couldn't just go all in that night uh, in that conversation. And so I'd really like to hear your reactions. A couple of the clips are me, I think one is you. Um, So I'd like to hear more about what you were thinking or what you might say now, okay? Sure. It's easier to dehumanize People in power because it doesn't have, it doesn't carry the same weight as dehumanizing people without power, right? People talk about punching up and punching down. At the same time, humans are humans. And you don't get human beings to move or change their perspective by beating on them, by demonizing them, by dehumanizing them. So, do you remember that part? We were really talking about why it's hard to do work with. Powerful white people, but that that is part of how we do it is by not forgetting that they're also human.
0: I'm actually pretty thankful. I think it's timely to hear that because I've been in a space the last week and a half around the word ego Mm -hmm. and how that relates to how people can and can't get along or get work to move forward. And from hearing that clip and thinking, I was actually just on a call a couple hours ago with the facilitator of a session. I sat in called uh, designing your ego death, which was timely for me because I am now in a leadership role where I have direct reports. And that's not how I started this job. And I'm realizing as we're navigating some transitions that I see the puffing of the chest and going out for self in ways that internally make me cringe. But I understand like Mm -hmm. in the grand sense of how we've been socialized to work in professional spaces. It's just kind of a part of the way of being. My gut just isn't happy about it. So what I've learned from that and got reminders of is in the spaces where you feel like something's off, it's good to like unpack that, investigate it. The other layer of that is when there is that type of tension and you want to make change and you're dealing with people in power is to truly understand what they care about, understand what Mm -hmm. they value and then figure out where those intersections lie for there to be a bit of softening on each side as much as humanly possible to make change work. But what's been probably the biggest thing is reminding myself to be curious intention Mm. instead of, you know, some days it's I vacillate between wanting to work in the system and flip a table is that we should probably flip tables (laughs) a little bit less and ask some more questions. And my my way of flipping the table is just asking the questions and realizing if someone's comfortable or uncomfortable hearing or responding. But if I come from a space of curiosity, maybe there's a lot more room for movement and growth In those moments where things get pretty hard or challenging
1: yeah in my own experience this discovery i think it was an internal discovery that oh all these people may be doing harm but they're also people Uh so how do we really think about people as people and not as just as power or just as oppressor or just as someone doing harm It is not easy work. It
0: is not. And Mm -hmm. what I am moving toward more, which was a couple of weeks ago, we had kind of like a tea with one of our co-founders of the Umbrella organization. And 50% of me was like, we don't need to do this. And the other side was like, Dorian, you actually might learn something today. You can do this 30, 45 minutes of time. And I'm glad I chose the latter because it reminded me of the humanity and humanness of my colleagues. Minus the titles that when they email me about something or request something in Slack, that I remember there are humans behind the screen. Mm -hmm. So it's also putting myself in the position and the environment to be curious instead of just like taking it off. It's let me get my head right. Let me get my heart right to be receptive to the fact that you're right. There are humans
1: um, on the other side of this. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Power is going to figure out a way to maintain itself, to perpetuate itself. And it does not like to be interrupted. But it's also relational. Yes. Right. That's really the thing. Like power is relational. You can, because of relationships, make things shift. But you can't develop relationships with people who you don't see as human beings. You can't have meaningful, challenging conversations with people. You don't have a relationship.
0: All right. Ooh, that one. For some reason, hearing that and I remember it. It feels hard right now in this spike moment to hear that there may be people that don't regard the fellow human that bleeds like you do, that wakes up and puts their clothes on in a a similar way not to be, be equal. And I've struggled with that in the work sense. What makes it easier for me is when someone comes to me and says, I can't believe they did that or this person treated me this way. How dare them? And I say, well, first of all, we have to ask ourselves, do they consider us equal? to them. That's mm-hmm. easy for me to think about. But the thought that there's a hierarchy of humanity, yeah, i probably for some reason, I'm like struggling in that with this exact moment. I think it's just thinking about what's happened in the world around us that's made me that like physically a painful thing to think about because that's still happening and it's happening at a scale that is unfathomable right now. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm wondering in your history, in your work life, You've had relationships, of course, with people with considerable power, and there's always the potential that they may feel like they can have a relationship with you, but that you're somehow special and that while they can see you or might respect your humanity, they may not respect the humanity of all your folks. Right. Talk a little bit about how you have managed to build those relationships, maintain them for the work that you had to do, but also protect yourself in those moments.
0: I feel like three things swirling around right now, but I'm gonna start (laughs) with in having conversations with folks, the difference probably from me two or three years ago to now, just more of a a shorter time period of of evolution is that I didn't want to engage as much. I would be the listener, I do the eagle eye approach. Let me take and absorb all that I can and then just like speak back what I think I'm hearing and experiencing. Now I'm in a space where I don't know if it's just the virtue of being approaching my mid 40s, but I don't feel like I have anything to prove or lose in sharing. So when someone does speak in a way that either feels untoward or they want to do a blanket statement or a generalization, I've begun to to share parts of myself. Um, and disclose things that I feel, okay, we it in the moment. Is this going to Am I risking a lot here? But I think in mm-hmm. any relationships where there's authenticity or some degree of building in a relational way, that's the risk you take. So it's me kind of mm-hmm. literally spirited in the moment to say, oh, you can share that story. You're not going to lose anything mm-hmm. from that. Um, and I've begun mm-hmm. to do more of that. And it's actually felt liberating in ways that I didn't anticipate. I thought it would be like, I'm doing this for the sake of like the transaction to make this thing work. But it's also created more of a, an emotional and spiritual shift in me to just release, like begin to take some of the weights off that I've probably been holding on to back in the moment when I wanted to flip a table because I was just trying to hold it. In. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes it less so the willingness to to want to create change in an abrupt way, even though sometimes that takes it's going to take that to make things move. So I've become softer with myself and giving myself a lot more grace So, what is it like to share what I'm, I'd am i like to, and then what I don't mm-hmm. goes to the people I care about most or my therapist or my coach. Like mm-hmm. I've been able to triage what is important for people to know to move things forward, but also for them to get to know me and what my sensibilities and values are. So that, again, when the tension comes, I anchor the values and what we have in common over um, what I don't necessarily agree mm-hmm. with.
1: What I'm hearing you say that resonates with me is um, that, we have to take risks, but we don't have to take risks that are really going to do us significant harm, right? And I say this all the time. I think, as um, particularly as Black women in the world focusing on equity and living integrated lives and having relationships, interracial relationships, is that we are incredibly vulnerable and we are much more vulnerable to harm because just the sheer nature of those relationships but we can have the right boundaries in place so that we expose the things we need to expose. What I really appreciate about what you just said that I've never thought about is that doing that can actually be liberating. Doing that can actually be good for us too, because you're right. I'm not a table flipper per se, but I am a table banger. Uh, (laughs) And so uh, it is really great to think about how Um, By just saying the things that need to be said, you let off the steam. It doesn't require you to flip the table or bang the table.
0: Yeah. And I think that comes from just increased self-awareness. If I think about what the key of that is, is, okay, you understand yourself now. You understand a bit more what your triggers are. So this is what you can give. When I consider them gifts of knowledge and insight for someone that may have thought one thing about a group of people and say, okay, if you're talking about them, you also are talking about me. Mm Think about what that means to you, but let me share some stories to give you a little bit more context as to why, you know, judging a book by its cover is probably not the way to go. And I've gotten that quite a bit where someone's like after they've heard a story or something I've decided to disclose, but like looking at you, I never would have thought all of that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's the point. Like I've known for stuff I think I got a confirmation back in September that, you know, a couple of months ago that I held things close to my chest. And I was like, I know, really aware of that. But I also have the ability and self-awareness to know what what you can hear from me Mm -hmm. and what are you worthy to Mm -hmm. hear from me and who gets the rest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: This also speaks to another thing we talked about during that conversation, which is we each have to approach the work in the way that's best for us, that is suited to our personalities and our skill sets. And I think that's becoming even more uh, salient right now with what's going on in the world, all of the various conflicts, but particularly the conflicts in Israel and the Palestinian territories, that people have a lot of different ideas about what's the right way to show up, even though they agree fundamentally on what needs to be happening for humanity. And so I think this next clip uh, gets into that, and I'm looking forward to what you have to say. People who are ostensibly working toward the same thing are often fighting each other. You need to be in the street. Why aren't you in the street? Why are you in there talking to those white people? They're like, well, because they're the ones who make the decision. So, like, yes, the in the street, raise up, but somebody has to be over here pointing out that there are specific changes they can make. And somebody, um, we need somebody out there to tell us what better looks like. Like, what does it look like? What what are we really envisioning here? And then somebody needs to start building that, right? We have to think about all of these things as elements of the same approach to change. (laughs) Yeah, um, I think it's uh, interesting to note that we're both just sitting here quietly (laughs) digesting that particular clip.
0: Yeah, I think it's, The reason I'm probably speechless in this moment is because I'm navigating that in like a workspace Mm -hmm. that what is it like to have the representation? What is it like for people to have a sense of agency and leadership and roles when there's a bigger system out there that's pushing Mm -hmm. against that? And yeah, I used to, you know, have the approach that if we got in the room, we could figure out consensus, you know, I don't know, two or three hours. But when you have headier, deeper issues, it takes like a progressive conversation over time to get there? And what is it like to have people be present for that when they can engage? What do we do? How do we call that? I don't know. I'll say just call it out and get people to begin to self manage to say, okay, maybe I'm not ready for this. Mm-hmm. Let me step away instead of, I'm gonna have a meeting on my schedule. Let's go ahead and just push forward and make it happen, not realizing you don't have the right collective headspace to address it. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder in the term of like fits and starts when someone sees it, okay, we're not all getting anywhere closer. What is it like just to say, let's stop. Mm -hmm. Let's recollect, like collect ourselves and maybe set a set of like community rules in the room. Mm -hmm. For instance, if I feel myself checking out, go do what I need to do to be okay, because there's something in this that's making me resist Mm -hmm. what progress or what another way could be when it's going against maybe what I would like to do because I'm conditioned and have been socialized to be X, Y, Z way. So, and I know there've been a couple of meetings and a series of sessions I've been able to get involved with where I'd look at myself and I, or I'll make a note in my notebook, Dorian, you're not in it right now. Why? Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that's not something like majority groups tend to do, Mm -hmm. but I do take the time back to like being self-aware to say, okay, today isn't the day for me and maybe I need to step away from this. And when I'm ready, I give you like the 100%, but if I can't give you the best of me in that moment, I need it's okay to walk out of that for that moment and go go re-examine
1: why. And that is so true for what it feels like inside the reform space, right? Because inside that space, you are wrestling with uh internal to the system, all of the people who are a part of it. And when you kind of think about that in the context of people who operate very much outside the system and are the, you know, the table flippers, the marchers, and the people who are more philosophical about it. But how often do all of those people get together to think about uh, the pieces? So you're doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, let's think about how we do this together. In your experience, how often do you actually get to have those kinds of conversations?
0: Not often. Mm -hmm. I know probably my time in Memphis was probably the, the, the closest I'd seen it in terms of getting different entities together, i.e. education. Mm-hmm. What does that look like for the young folks mm-hmm. in higher ed? Mm-hmm. What is it like to talk about healthcare as it relates to like race disparities, mm-hmm. life expectancies, mm-hmm. things like that? They, they happen in small pockets. And I know there are probably a handful of cities across the country that get to engage this and actually even bring government mm-hmm. into the picture because Anything that an elected official runs on is like a platform issue, which affects and touches many of the constituents or residents in that space. Mm -hmm. But I don't see it enough. And I wonder, I don't know if it's like the collective network having an ego Mm -hmm. space that we're in this. So we're going to take off and go do this over here. And I'm like, but it's connected to this over here. Mm -hmm. And if we're being completely honest with ourselves, there's an interconnectedness that for someone like me, that's had the professional space where I get to touch these different areas. I know they don't meet because they are talking and saying the same thing, but they don't even know Mm -hmm. each other. So part of the work that I got to do in Memphis was to say, okay, how do we have cross-sector conversations? How do we have cross-sector facilitation? Mm -hmm. Because people kind of have their own way that they operate, but there's parallel to it. Mm -hmm. How do you just bring that sensibility in the room to have a deeper conversation? I'll say one of the, I would say a proud moment, which I don't have much of those in my career because pride for me is when the people are okay. Mm -hmm. But it was having the conversation where we brought Andrew Glover Blackwell and Michael McAfee from PolicyLink Mm -hmm. to have their own conversation of working with Memphis over time to say, how do we do what we do well together? And finally sit in the room and talk about what that looks like. And some of the statistics that support that, such as insert 15, 20 years from now that we're going to have a majority, what's been considered a minority or people of color country. And how do you set up a a stage for them to thrive? Because up until that point, you know, systems for the most part have helped well to do white Mm -hmm. folks, people with some degree of power, whether it's real or perceived that they've been there's been a really great train for them. Mm -hmm. But for the rest of us, that hasn't necessarily been the case. But that has to be the case at some point if the country is going to progress or the U.S. specifically is going to progress. So getting a chance to have them hear what's happening in Memphis, then working with us kind of alongside. We went to their equity summit to support and brought people that had never either. Some people had never even left town. Mm-hmm. But to have this really deep conversation and meet other people like them across the country, I think it's, you know, Taking people and putting them in a different environment to have the conversation. How do you create conditions and curate an experience that facilitates trust, trustworthiness? And when you have those anchors in place, when you're talking about really hard topics, that trust is what helps people to leave that door, that container to go do something together. Um, And I've seen that a little bit in my current work of how do you create the proper container and space for people to trust each other enough to go out with, you know, they're not so pleasant statistics and make something better from those dismal numbers.
1: Mm -hmm. One of the things you just mentioned about really getting people from community who are deeply embedded in a geographic space out of that space to see some of the things that you have seen, but not uh, in a way that says, I'm going to go out and educate you, but why don't you figure out the ways that you yourself can contribute in these other spaces as well? is so powerful. Yeah. I think it introduces people to their own power in a different way. I can't remember who said it, but I think it might have been Alice Walker, that the one of the ways that people lose power is that they give it up themselves. Yeah. And we forget that we have it, but we do. And we have it in whatever way we show up. We have it if we're in neighborhoods trying to advocate with each other. We have it if we're down at the city council meeting, um, trying to get the city council people to do differently. Um, We have, if we're the city council person, uh, we just don't necessarily know how to use it or amplify it all the time.
0: Yeah. You make me think about moments when as just an individual, I'm having like a really rough week or I feel like odds are stacked against me. And I may go to a session that reminds me of myself or I'll share a note like I've texted you before Mm -hmm. saying, oh, my goodness, either I can't believe this is my life in a good or bad Mm -hmm. way but the reminder of the goodness and what I do hold mm-hmm. so that I can go back out there and keep going. Mm-hmm. But I think it's reminder of what we do possess, whether it's the brilliance, whether it's the sensibility, where whether it's the personality that helps to create a different dynamic and shift energy in a room. I think those reminders as individuals are key that we can uplift them in communities to remind them of what they hold and what we all hold. But then how do we take that with the system agency to make change? understanding this is hard stuff. Mm -hmm. So every day is not going to be perfect, but on those not so great days, what are the reminders of the goodness
1: and why it reminds you of why you do the work you do Mm -hmm. in the first place? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. I have one more question for you. How do you define equity and what does it look like in your work? I would say equity is the
0: ability for people to have opportunity to live their best lives and not just in the the, the trite phrase that's out there and the song that accompanies it, but it's about are, am I able to take care of the people I love and care about most? And are they able to go out and be their best selves so that we all have a healthy community and healthy in whatever way people define it? So if it's success, what does success mean to you? If it's your health, what does that mean to be in a space where you have access to solid health care and you're not waiting hours to be seen? But what is it like to interact with these systems? And at the end of the day, you still have a sense of dignity, mm. um, and you go to sleep knowing I made the best decision I could. You know, with the knowledge I have, with the resources I have, um, and also thinking about what what resources looks like to live an optimal life, not just one where you're surviving and getting by, because they're totally different headspace and heart space that if you're just trying to get by, then you have just enough or not enough. I think things like choices feel limited. Mm -hmm. Your ability to actually affect your change and have a sense of a locus of control doesn't feel there. But if you have money or a little bit more resource Mm -hmm. in your pocket, you can make a different set of decisions. And I've lived through that multiple times, even in the spaces and tables I've sat at, I have those personal struggles as well. So I don't want to think that other people don't have that either. And as what it looks like in my work is if I'm in a room and I realize people are absent and I know that they're absent is to ask who's missing to see how people think about that. Mm-hmm. And if they think everybody's there <laughs> begin a curiosity. Why do we think that's the case? And we know statistics. We've looked at a couple of PowerPoint presentations. If I'm the only one in here and you're asking me, what do we, what do black people do? And I'm the only one here. That's how we understand there's an absence. So being able to lend the sensibility to make sure we have, most importantly, people impacted in a room and that you're not getting what people would consider the cream of the crop. You're getting those that might be going through it. And what is it like from a, a tactical way? How do you offer them and compensate them for their labor or expertise to tell you what's going on? Don't just get them to show up and volunteer. Make sure the hours of availability coincide. Mm-hmm. What our day looks like may not look like somebody who's working a third shift. Um, in a space. So it's like down to the nuance. What does compensation for that labor and expertise look like? Because they are coming with expertise because other groups or classes are trying to solve a problem on their behalf. And you can't do that with the knowledge in the room. Mm -hmm. You have to bring people in. So to me, equity is like looking at all of the nuance. So even in the work, my work that I get paid in my nine to five to do, we don't ask people to just come in and not pay them for their labor. Mm -hmm. Like that's for anyone that does that, and I've seen some tricklings of that, even the community here in Memphis, and I'm just like, something about that. You don't ask people to do something for free, <laughs> even if it's an honorarium, if it's a gas car. You know, we know inflation has affected all of us. Mm-hmm. So looking at the nuance, like what is a, the the life of someone from the time they wake up in the morning to the time they put their head back down at night? How are we able to alleviate some of the struggles and barriers through what we're asking of them um, to contribute to the conversation? Mm
1: -hmm. That was so powerful. And equity is a lot of work then, huh? Yeah.
0: (laughs) So people that say they want to do it, they're just like, oh, yeah, right, right, equity. And I'm like, "Okay, let's start asking some questions. So. If you want equity, what's your pay range and scale look like? Are you telling people how much, you know, they're going to get paid for a job opportunity that looks like the dream job? Mm-hmm. Um, if it's the dream job on paper, but then you start to discuss salary because you don't know it beforehand, which is something another equity conversation. You might be trying to work that job and then you got to work one or two others just to, to help you have a quality of life that you feel you deserve or that you want for yourself in the space of what looks good on paper. So all of that is is important to consider and it's hard because people are going to have to start sharing things and disclosing and being transparent in a way that, you know,
1: dominant culture hasn't necessarily supported in the past. And on that note, I will say Dorian, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you for having me, Adrian. As always, it's a pleasure. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Equitable To connect and see the work we do to make equity actionable and to find all episodes of this podcast, visit StandpointConsulting.com. You can also follow us on social media at Standpoint Consulting.